Father in heaven, we're asking that your presence would be in this place, that your power would touch our hearts. We're asking that you would speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we talked about last week the power of your word, how your word builds faith into our lives, how when we follow your word, we can expect that you're going to do great things in our lives. And Father, as we look at your word together this morning, May it bring life to us. Speak to us, Jesus. Lead us to adore you more than we've ever adored you in our lives. Thank you, Father, so much. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Chris was a happy five-year-old in 1978 when suddenly everything went wrong. He went to the doctor and they diagnosed, diagnosed him with terminal Uh, leukemia. Five years old, diagnosed with leukemia. Well, Chris told his mom something. He said, I still plan to be a police officer in the Arizona Police Department. That was Chris's dream. That's what Chris was expecting to do when he grew up. He wanted to be a hero. He wanted to save people from bad guys. Well, one night, Chris's friend was on a stakeout. As he was there on the stakeout, he was there with another friend, and they were there all night long. Now, the one friend worked for a custom, the customs agency, and he said to his friend as they were there in the middle of the night, and they were nothing to talk about, I guess, in the middle of the night on a stakeout watching for bad guys. Well, in the middle of the night, he suddenly said to his friend, you know what? I have this friend. Well, actually, it's my wife's friend who has a son who's been terminally ill with leukemia for a couple years now. He's seven years old now, and he's not expected to live long. And he has this dream. He wants to become a public safety officer. And, and I've talked to my department, and they just can't work it out. And it, they don't think that, that they can go through with doing that for him. And the man responded. He said, well, let me see what, what the police department can do for him. And so he went back and he talked to the liaison who then talked to the director of the police department there in Arizona. And as they talked about it, they said, yes, we're going to do it. Whatever it takes, we're going to pull out all the stops and we are going to make Chris an honorary police officer. And so what they did was they used the department's police uh, helicopter And they went and they picked up Chris and they put him in the helicopter and they flew him to the department headquarters. And when they got there, they presented him with a real police officer badge and a real hat. You should have seen pictures of him beaming. I don't have them all here, but he was there chewing gum with his big police officer hat on. His dream was coming true, but the department got so excited that he was moved by this that they decided we're going to do something more for him. And so they decided that tonight we're going to go and we're going to order a uniform for him that's just his side. So they went to the place that makes their uniforms and the workers at the uniform shop actually stayed up all night long so that the next day they could have a police officer uniform for little Chris. And that day, as they put him in his uniform, and he wore his hat, you can see him there, he has his badge on, they had him take his toy motorcycle at seven years old and drive it through the cones so that they said, you can earn your wings and you can have the motorcycle uh, permission so that you can drive a motorcycle as a police officer. And sure enough, he passed the test. So the next day, they were planning to bring him his wings when they found out that he was in the hospital. And so they went to the hospital to bring him his wings. And there he was, surrounded by all that he'd been given by the police officers, all of those that precious things to him, representing that he was now an honorary police officer. They gave him his wings. And that day, May 2nd, 1980, he passed away. A group of people came together to help Chris realize his dreams. Now this had an impact. People began to say, you know, I bet that there are other kids out there that we could be doing this for. I bet that we could do this for more people who are terminally ill. And before long, those two police officers were overwhelmed with 
people telling them that they needed to start an organization. And before long, they started the organization, Make a Wish. I have a picture of their first banner here. It says, Gracious Make a Wish. Uh, That's Chris's last name. That was the first banner that they had. They started off with just $2,000 when they tried to make the first wish come true for a child. But 32 years later, they have made the wish of over 250,000 kids come true. Isn't that an incredible mission that this company has? A, A mission to fulfill the dreams of somebody. A mission to fulfill the wish of a dying child. Somebody that is potentially going to die from an illness. What would you be willing to do for a friend, for a family member who is on the brink of death? Go with me to Luke chapter 5. We pick up a story in Luke chapter 5 that we've heard a little bit about this morning, but we're going to dive more deeply into it. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus has been having problems with crowds. There's been crowds attracted to his ministry. He's healed lepers. He's done these very miraculous signs. And so he's actually not able to come into cities anymore because the people just rush to Jesus because there's so many who are demon-possessed, so many who are going through illness, and they all want to come close to Jesus. So you notice in verse 15, Luke chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, however, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Multitudes are coming to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Don't pass that by. Multitudes are coming to Jesus. They're flocking to Jesus. They need Jesus' help, and Jesus is often slipping away to go into the wilderness to pray. You remember how we've talked about that he told the disciples that the reason that they couldn't cast out that demon, the reason that that mountain couldn't move and that demon-possessed child's life was because of their lack of faith, because they hadn't taken time in prayer. Prayer strengthens our faith. It strengthens our connection with God. And here you find that Jesus modeled that for us, that he, when he had the crowds pressing in around him, he modeled to you and I how to have faith. And that was that he slipped away into the wilderness and he took time to talk to his father in prayer. There was no greater joy in the life of Jesus than to pray. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. Verse 17, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who would come out of every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. This is bad news for the disciples and Jesus. Pharisees and teachers of the law have come out of Galilee, every town in Galilee, every town in Judea, every part of Jerusalem. What are they there for? They're doctors of the law. They're there to make sure who is this new prophet named Jesus? Who is this guy who's doing all of these miraculous signs? Is he really following the law of God? Is he really from God or is he from the devil? And there they are. They're watching carefully. But then it says this, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, let's jump over to the Gospel of Luke where we're going to pick up the story because, I'm sorry, Mark, where there's a few more details added in. If you go to Mark chapter 2, this story is in the Gospel of Mark and Luke and also in the Gospel of Matthew. In Mark chapter 2 in verse 1, it picks up this same story and it says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days. He may have been out in the wilderness for more than just a short period of time, but now he's come back to the city. And it was heard that he was in the house. When it says it was heard that he was in the house, it's talking about a particular house, right? When you add the definite article to something, it lets you know that it's talking about something in particular. So when it says he was in the house, it was the house that they often were in, which most people believe, or a lot of scholars will tell you, was Peter's house. So he's there in Peter's house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. There's so many people surrounding Peter's house. Not only is it packed inside, which they estimate that a a house in this time in Capernaum, you probably could fit about 50 people inside the house if they were all standing, packed together. 
There's about 50 people or so inside the house, but then you have, you can't even get to the door of the house. People are at the windows. They're all around this house. There's a crowd around the house. Everybody wants to get close to Jesus. And he preached the word to them. We talked last week about the value of the word of God and how it builds faith in our life. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is like seeds that goes into our heart. Take time with Jesus every day and faith will be built in your life. These people were there listening to the Word of of God. They were listening to Jesus share the Word with them. In verse 3, Then they came to Him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. A paralytic. This is somebody who couldn't possibly move and he's being carried by four individuals. How well do you think that these four people knew this paralytic man in order to carry him to Jesus? Do you think that he just picked some random strangers and trusted himself? I mean, to be paralyzed, you have to really trust somebody to carry you around. So here are four people carrying him to Jesus' house. And when they had come near him, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Just imagine this story for a moment, okay? We've maybe heard this story a lot since we were children, but just imagine what this is like. As these four men come up to the house, and they can't possibly press through a crowd, I can't imagine what a, crowd's, uh, what a crowd would have to be like in order to not get through it, especially if my wife was there, because I'll tell you, when she goes through a crowd, I lose her because she's able to just zip through the crowd, and I, I'm kind of trying to, well, go ahead, okay, and she finds her way through really quickly, probably due to her size, I don't know. But for me to get through a crowd can be difficult, but I've never come to a crowd that I absolutely could not get through let alone if you're carrying an injured person, you would think that people would have opened for him to bring, to be brought to Jesus. But there's no possible way for them to get into the house. And so they go and they look at the house and probably at this point, they thought of turning back. It would be tempting at this point to say, you know what, let's try tomorrow or let's try the day after that. Maybe there won't be so many people. Maybe we can find Jesus when he's not so occupied. But no, they're determined, whether it was the paralytic saying, I want to get to Jesus. The friends also were determined to get the paralytic to Jesus. And so they see those stairs that were on the houses back then. There was a stairs that would lead up to a flat roof. The roofs would be uh, covered with clay and branches and things across rafters that would kind of make a solid packed roof that you could actually walk across. Now Luke actually says that it was tiles that were on the roof. But you notice here that there must also have been this clay and uh, these, um, basically this thick layer on there because it tells us that they unroofed the roof, they broke through the roof, but they also, what did they do? They broke through the roof and they dug, the, the Greek there is basically that they were digging through the roof. So here you are. Imagine that you're one of the scribes and Pharisees and you're listening to Jesus. You're carefully analyzing, watching for him to take a misstep. When is he going to say something about the Sabbath? When is he going to preach more of that cheap grace that he tries to preach that, that does away with the law? And you're listening really carefully, trying to listen to find a mistake in what Jesus is teaching. When all of a sudden, dust begins to come down from the ceiling as this clay begins to be broken apart. And all of a sudden, you're looking up at the roof and it must have grabbed everybody's attention as the roof is torn apart. And suddenly, down through the roof is lowered a man who you think is just pitiful. You see, to the Jews, they knew that an individual like this, it was probably due to his sins that he had come to this place in his life. And they had judged him. They had actually probably assumed that, that it was his own fault that he was like this. And as they look at this man who was on the verge of death, He's in a desperate situation, being lowered there in front of Jesus. You can only imagine the thoughts that are going through their mind. But Jesus, 
Jesus. How does Jesus respond in a moment like this? He's interrupted. He's there speaking. And imagine we had a guest speaker today that we had been looking forward to coming and he's here speaking and sharing the word with us and all of a sudden the roof begins to shake and down comes a bed in front of him. We would be a little perturbed by somebody interrupting our service like that. In fact, a speaker would probably be a little perturbed by the disruption, but not Jesus. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, and the other Gospels tell us, he was moved with compassion. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. In fact, let's look at it over in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, or verse 2. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. He adds a little bit in there as to what Jesus said to this paralytic. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. This is beautiful, what Jesus says to the paralytic. First of all, he starts off by saying, Son. He's using the Greek word technon, child. He's saying, son, child, you are precious in the sight of God. We talked about it two weeks ago, about how God wants for us to humble ourselves as a little child. He wants for us to rest in his arms. He wants us to realize that he's our loving heavenly father. And when we humble ourselves like a child, he promises that he gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves, we can trust that he is our savior, that he will come through for us and that he will deliver us. Son, you're, you're, you're a child. You're, you're a precious child to your Father in heaven. Son, be of good cheer. Be happy. Rejoice. This is an exciting moment for you. I want you to be at peace. I want you to rejoice. I want you to be of good cheer. I don't know where your heart's at this morning. I don't know the burdens that might be weighing you down, but Jesus wants for you to realize that you are a cherished son of the Most High God and that you can be of good cheer. You too can have your sins forgiven now. There's no reason to go on doubting and questioning whether God loves you, whether God cares for you, but in this moment, God is very clear. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus recognized something in this paralytic that there was more on his mind than merely the fact that he couldn't move. There was more on his mind than this sickness that was leading to death. He had his eyes fixed on eternity. So often we tend to get distracted by our illnesses, by the things that happen here, by the difficulties that we face here. But this paralytic, we can tell, had his eyes fixed on eternity. Jesus recognized that in him. And Jesus wanted for him to see that he had the power to forgive sin. Going back to Mark chapter 2. Jesus, after he says, your sins are forgiven, in verse 6, he says, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They're, they're just there thinking about what Jesus has just done. They're not expressing it yet. They haven't come to the place where they're willing to, to voice these accusations of Jesus, but they're there reasoning in their hearts. And they say, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What Jesus has just done is to say that he is God on earth. For nobody could ever say something like that unless they're God. You can't go to any person to receive forgiveness. Only God can give forgiveness. But immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves... If there's any other need that we have of evidence that he's God, how about that he can read thoughts? They haven't yet brought our technology to the place where it can read our thoughts, right? I haven't yet met a person who can read my thoughts. But Jesus knew what they were thinking because he was God in human flesh. He was there and he could tell what was going on. He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out into the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. We've never seen something happen like this before. This is beyond our realm of experience. Jesus wanted those people to know that he had power to forgive sins. More than the fact that he could heal their sicknesses. Multitudes were flocking to him for that. There were multitudes that were bringing their sick to him. In fact, look over in Matthew chapter 15 where we read about how people would bring their friends to Jesus. Matthew chapter 15 talks about all the different types of people that that were being brought to Jesus to be healed. In verse 29, it says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Here Jesus is sitting on a mountain. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. This was a common thing that took place. People would grab their loved ones, their sick friends, the ones that couldn't get to Jesus because they were too blind to get to Jesus. Who couldn't get to Jesus because their legs couldn't carry them there. Jesus would receive these people as they brought their loved ones, their friends to him. They would lay them at his feet and Jesus would heal them. Verse 31, so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's exactly what happens back here in Mark chapter 2. But in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is trying to teach an even deeper lesson. More than just that he can take care of our temporal needs. So often when we think about faith, we think about wanting to have faith for God to provide the car that we need. We think about wanting to have faith so that God could provide the job that we need. We think about having faith so that God could hopefully provide for our family's needs or or work things out in our lives. But God has such a bigger picture of what He wants for our lives. Faith is about so much more than just providing for our temporal needs. Faith is... Is about forgiveness of sins. It's about believing that Jesus has the power to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a miracle of miracles. There's medical science that can help with ailments. There's so many things that can be fixed, but the heart, there's only one who can create in us a brand new heart. And that happens like we talked about last week through the power of his creative word. That word which speaks life, which creates the reality which it speaks. Just think about these friends bringing the paralytic to Jesus. Jesus saw in them faith. It tells us that that he recognized in these individuals that they had faith. What was the faith that Jesus saw in these friends? In this instance, faith is expressing itself as something that is unwilling to give up. It's unrelenting. And specifically, it's unrelenting in wanting to bring a friend to Jesus' feet. Wanting to do whatever it takes to get someone to Jesus because they recognize that their friend needed Jesus. As they dug through that roof, Jesus recognized in them faith. In the Desire of Ages, it talks about this. Actually, it's in the uh, Crest Collection, page 161. It says, The Savior was not unmindful of the efforts that had been made to bring the man to him. His heart of love and pity was at once moved. When he saw their faith, it was enough. You see, these four friends knew that they couldn't do what it took to help this paralytic. They knew that they didn't have what he required. Not only physically, but they knew the burden of guilt in this man's life. And they couldn't ease that. What they needed was a savior. And so they 
dug through that roof. They did whatever it took to get to Jesus because they recognized in Jesus a treasure that surpassed everything else. They recognized in Jesus a Savior who could help any malady, who could ease any burden of guilt. And so they just wanted to get their friend to Jesus. It makes me think about my own life. What am I willing to do to get someone to Jesus? Because Jesus alone has what I need and what my friend might need. I've realized more and more as I counsel with people, people will come to me with a problem. I don't have all of the answers to solve what ails this world. But I do know that when somebody comes to me, that I have a revelation of Jesus in his word. That there is power in the word of God. That Jesus is revealed on every page and in every line of scripture. And that I can bring somebody into contact with the word of God. And I can encourage them in their walk with God. I can encourage them to be in contact with Jesus. And I know that that changes lives because I've seen it happen again and again. There's power in coming in contact with Jesus. But what am I willing to do in order to see that take place in somebody's life? Am I willing to go out of my way? Am I willing to carry somebody who's a dead weight for potentially miles in order to get to Jesus? Am I willing to climb up on the roof? Am I willing to embarrass myself by digging through a roof and lowering my friend right in front of Jesus? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to help the people around me come in contact with Jesus through his word? There's a story that's told in the book, Gospel Workers, about a man who was in a well. They were digging this well in a town in New England. As they dug this well, the work was nearly finished, but one man was still in the bottom. As he was there in the bottom of the well, everybody else had come out of the well when suddenly the, way, the well caved in around him. And I pick up the story. It says, instantly the alarm was sent out and mechanics, farmers, merchants, lawyers hurried breathlessly to the rescue. Ropes, ladders, spades, and shovels were brought by eager, willing hands. Save him. Oh, save him was the cry. Men worked with desperate energy till the sweat stood in beads upon their brows and their arms trembled with exertion. At length, a pipe was thrust down through which they shouted to the man to answer if he was still alive. The response came, Alive, but make haste. It is dreadful in here. With a shout of joy, they renewed their efforts, and at last he was reached and saved, and the cheer that went up seemed to pierce the very heavens. He is saved, echoed through every street in the town. Wouldn't we do the same if right now we knew that somebody was desperately in need of us to run and rescue them? Maybe outside in the parking lot, somebody had collapsed. Wouldn't we all immediately rush and do everything possible to save their physical life? Of how much more value is eternal life? She goes on to say, was this too great of zeal and interest? Too great of enthusiasm to save just one man? It surely was not. But what is the loss of temporal life in comparison with the loss of a soul? If the threatened loss of a life will arouse in human hearts a feeling so intense, should not the loss of a soul arouse even deeper solicitude in men who claim to realize the danger of those apart from Christ? Will not the servants of God show as great zeal in laboring for the salvation of souls as was shown for the life of that one man buried in a well? What would you be willing to do to save a man buried in a well? Of how much more value is a person's eternal life? Is it to bring somebody in contact with Jesus? Of how much more value is that? And honestly... Make-A-Wish Foundation is such an amazing thing to have helped 250,000 kids to experience such amazing things. But the things that they're helping them experience are like one girl got to become a ballerina on a stage for a night. That's a wonderful thing for a girl to experience who may die within a few days. 
but of how much more value to bring her in contact with Jesus and to know that she has eternity to rejoice in Jesus' presence. It's a great thing that Chris got to become a police officer, and I'm so glad that Make-A-Wish Foundation does stuff like that, but of how much more value for Chris to choose Jesus to live with him forever. Friends, eternity is worth everything. Eternal life matters. Eternal life is worth everything to you and I. This life is short. It's going to come to an end one way or another. And in the end, I don't want for any of my friends, I don't want for any of my neighbors, I don't want any family members to come to me and say, what? You knew that Jesus was a Savior like that? You knew that He was so precious and such a treasure and yet you didn't bring me to Him? I don't want to come to the end and recognize that I missed the opportunity of bringing somebody to Jesus. So how do we have the type of faith that these friends have? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about how he grasped a different picture of God. You think about Paul. Paul was the one who was on a journey to murder Christians. If anybody didn't get it, it was Paul. If anybody didn't value bringing people to Jesus, it was Paul. But in Ephesians chapter 3, he begins to talk about how incredible the grace is that we get from God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by the revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written to you already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God to me by the effective working of his power." Paul says, I was able to go to the Gentiles. I was able to go on those missionary journeys. Paul, who has recorded more of his travels than anybody else, more conversions, more people were impacted through Paul's ministry than any other record that we have in the New Testament. All of that, he said, came through this revelation of the mystery of who Jesus is. Like John said in 1 John, when he says, we have handled these things. We've felt these things. And we've had fellowship with Jesus. And we want you to have that same fellowship. Peter recorded it in First Peter. He said, these are the things in which angels long to look. This is this beautiful matchless treasure. Paul begins to try to explain this to us more fully. Just what a precious gift that we have in Jesus. In verse 8 he says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. There's that humility that we've been talking about. Paul had great humility. Here, this man that was used by God to do such incredible things, he received grace because he recognized that he was the least of all the saints. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now look at what this grace did. To me who am less than the least of all these saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why did Paul go on those journeys? Why did Paul go through shipwreck, through beatings, through prison time? Paul recognized that in Jesus was unsearchable riches. And he said, it was all worth it. I had this grace put on me that I could preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful to me. He's so incredible to me that I just had to preach the riches of Jesus. And to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery. What is the, the friendship that we can have with God. How we can become united together and we can become reconciled to God. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. 
to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He says, this that we're doing as a church in bringing people to Jesus, the entire universe is looking at this. Principalities and powers in heavenly places, they're looking at what's taking place and how we're bringing people to Jesus. And it's bringing glory to God according to the eternal purpose of which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then verse 14, he begins a prayer for those saints in Ephesus. A prayer that I believe was that they too would grasp the unsearchable riches of Christ for the purpose of developing friendships that they would bring people to Jesus. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and width and length and depth And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wanted them to grasp the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And to grasp that in their hearts in such a way that it would become contagious to the world around them. Do I treasure Jesus? This morning I want to challenge you to ask yourself that question. How valuable is Jesus to me? Do I recognize that Jesus, through the power of his word, can solve the problems in the people's lives around me? Do I recognize the need of bringing people to Jesus? In the ministry of healing, it talks about how Christ did ministry. Ministry of healing, page 143. It says, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. Tomorrow, we have an awesome opportunity. There's going to be people flooding through the doors of this church, many of whom may not have heard the gospel, many of whom may not have heard about the loving character of God, many of whom don't recognize the things about God that you recognize. How do we reach people in our community? Christ's method alone will give us success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. You see, those four friends, they had to go out of their way to carry this paralytic to get him to Jesus. They couldn't just say, hey, Jesus is a really good person. He's going to take care of you. Instead, they actually had to carry him to Jesus. They had to come close to him. They had to come close in sympathy with him. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. It was only after he'd won their confidence, after he developed friendship, that he was able to bring people to Jesus, or that he was able to invite people to follow him. And it's the same method that will bring us success in bringing people to Jesus. I want to be willing to do whatever it takes to take my friends to Jesus. How about you? I want to be willing to do whatever it takes to provide for the needs of my friends. I want to invite Leah and Leo to come up and to share about last year's Hope Clinic and something that that took place uh, that I believe is an inspiring story of bringing a friend to Jesus. So grateful that Leo is willing to share a little bit of his story and what God has done in his life. So last year in June, as many of you know, we held our first Hope Clinic, opening up vision and dental medical services to our community. And you happened to find out about the Hope Clinic. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I found out the Hope, about the Hope Clinic from the dental uh, clinic, which is across the hall from where I work. Okay, so Leo heard about it, and you were interested in the clinic. Tell us why. Um, I have a friend that um, <clears throat> when I came down here, I didn't really know anyone, so I would go to um, the uh, a taco place where I would get my tacos in and made friends there because they were kind of like my surrogate family almost. 
And um, then he was having trouble um, with a tooth, and he said that the dentist was going to charge him $2,400 for a root canal. And I thought, hmm, well, let me, let me ask around. And so I started initially looking around in San Luis Obispo for um, a clinic that would take people that didn't have any health insurance. And then um, my supervisor, yeah, she said about um, they were having a, uh, a, a clinic and then the uh, dental supervisor, she said, oh, yeah, yeah. And let me, let me get some information about it. And so <clears throat> that's where I found out about it. And so I, I told him, look, I'll take you down uh, or up to Templeton to this clinic that you can get a, um, maybe get that taken care of. And I said, well, um, I'll take you up there, but I won't beg you. <laughs> so I mean, I, I will, I'll do it. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of my word. And, and so he said, well, okay. So he picked up Saul from the taco shop in the morning to bring him to the Hope Clinic. And what time did you arrive here that Sunday? Um, I told him to, uh, I would stop by his house at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> okay, so when I got here at 5.30 to start setting up, Leo and Saul were actually sitting outside on the bench. They were the very first people. And last year we did it a little bit different, and so they wanted to make sure that they were the first walk-ins here so that they could be seen. Well, it was such a blessing because... We weren't really offering root canals. That wasn't one of the main things, except for the fact that Dr. Kaler, one of our church members, specializes in that. And so what did Saul get done that day? Um, he got a root canal done on number seven for all you dentists out there. <laughs> That's right. So something that was going to cost him $2,400, he was able to come to the Hope Clinic. He was able to get that. And I think we actually have a picture of Saul. This is him at the Hope Clinic last year. And then go ahead and show that next one. This is him with his brand new clean front tooth, and he was so grateful for that. He actually wrote a thank you letter. Leo helped him do that and send a picture. But tell us, what did this do for you? You came just to bring Saul. He was blessed. He got his root canal, everything done. But what did this do for you? Um, Well, I used to go to the Adventist church uh, a long time ago, back in the 90s. And the last place on earth I ever wanted to be was in an Adventist church. So, uh, but I brought him up, and then I saw that the, uh, they were having a class on depression. And I said, hmm, okay, well, this sounds like something I need. So I decided to come up to the uh, depression recovery class. So Leo came, and actually while he was here, because Saul was one of our first walk-in patients, you actually had to wait here for hours, right? No? I think you were here like half the day. Because uh, I figured it, I picked him up at uh, 4.30 until, and we walked out at 10.30. Oh, okay. So he was only here for a few hours. But when he was here, you picked up a book at the checkout station. What was that book? Um, it was The Great Controversy. The Great Controversy. And he told us later when he was at the depression recovery class that you don't really read a lot of books, right? But what happened with that particular book? Um, that I, I, that's the first book I've read like in, I don't know, three, four years maybe. So. And what do you think? Uh, all the way through, I said, mm, okay, well, this is, it's, you know, it's time, but. Hmm. What was it time for? Um, time to um, give myself to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think wow. that um, my big thing was the, um, the Laodicean message, you know, when Jesus said, you make me so sick, I'm going to, spew you out of my mouth. And uh, my, um, my issues seem to be all around my relationship with my dad. And I was confusing the God the Father with um, uh, my own father, which let's just say it wasn't the most functional uh, relationship. And, um, but through, um, through some people that I've met and a message that I've been introduced to with the the 1888 message that we have a great high priest who is a counselor a friend who has lived in our fallen sinful flesh And knows how to deliver us. Amen. And it's a gift. Amen. Amen. 
Praise God. God has been working in amazing ways in Leo's life. Just hasn't even been a whole year yet because our last Hope Clinic was in June. So just in the last 11 months, Leo has been coming to church. He's been hanging out at the Spanish church sometimes, sometimes Santa Maria church. He's been coming to prayer meeting. And what a blessing is at prayer meeting. He doesn't just pray along with us, but afterwards he's been doing physical therapy for all of us that have been hurting and donating his services. And what are you going to be doing tomorrow? Um, I'm going to be doing physical therapy out here, apparently. That's right. And it's not only his first clinic to work because a few people snagged you and actually took you to Bakersfield Clinic to work a few months ago. And that was a blessing. But praise God for what he's able to do. Leo came to just bless his friend and his friend was indeed blessed. But God has worked so much in your life too. We just want to ask you to keep praying for Leo. God is doing special things. We want him to complete the good work that he started. Praise God. What a difference it can make to come into contact with loving people. Just to see what's taking place in Leo's life. I remember it was probably the second or third Sabbath that he came to church here. And God's done amazing miracles. If you have a chance, talk to Leo about some of the things that God has done in directing his footsteps. God's obviously wanted him to be back in church. Uh, He hadn't stepped foot in an Adventist church, he said, in like 18 years. But he's back. And I remember one uh, Sabbath after church, we were standing there in the lobby and he said, you know, this is a completely different Seventh-day Adventist church than the one I left. Meaning the church in general, that, that there's a renewed focus on Jesus and renewed emphasis on what Jesus can do in our lives. That he is that most high priest who alone can lead us by faith. What does Ephesians 2, 8 say? For by faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You think of that paralytic lying on that bed. There's absolutely nothing that that paralytic could do of himself. But it's a free gift of God. And Jesus didn't just leave the paralytic laying there. After he said, your sins are forgiven, he could have just let him die there. But Ephesians 2 goes on to say in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just like Paul had a mission that God had designed for him, it was by his grace that Paul was able to leave the missionary life that he led. God has a plan for your life. He's already prepared good works beforehand for you just to walk in them. Today, Jesus says to you, If you are repentant and you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, Jesus says to you today, your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't stop there. He also goes on to say, rise up and walk. Love this world for me. I've prepared good works for you that you should walk in them. They've been prepared beforehand. Take my promises. Take them to heart. Take John 14, 12. If you believe in me, the works that I do, you will do also and greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. Grab a hold of these promises and run with them. Walk in the good works which I have prepared for you to do. But for Leo, if Leo hadn't have become friends with a guy at the taco shop, you know, I've been to taco shops before, but I haven't become that close of friends with the cook at the taco shop that I actually know what they need. But as Leo developed that close friendship, he came to recognize a need in Saul. And as he brought him here, in the process, he was blessed. When you bring people to Jesus, when you draw close to them, you develop a friendship, a friendship that that leads you to the place where you say, hey, you make such good burritos, I'm willing to wake up at 4.30 to get you there. When you have that kind of friendship with somebody that you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus, it takes developing a close friendship. Ministry of Healing goes on to say, there is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. The next part is challenging. It says if less time were given to sermonizing, less time to preaching sermons and sitting in the pew listening to sermons, less time to just bringing people to hear sermons and more time to drawing close, developing friendships with people, and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. 
The poor are to be relieved. The sick cared for. The sorrowing and bereaved comforted. The ignorant instructed. The inexperienced counseled. We've got to come close to people. We've got to develop friendships with people. When we see that person on the street that we figure, well, they're probably struggling with drugs and that's why they're at, are we willing to come close to somebody? When we see that friend at work who's not a friend yet, who has the potential of becoming a friend, are we willing to draw close enough to them to really find out what they need? It's one thing to tell them about Jesus. It's another thing to draw close to them and to draw them with you closer to Jesus. You know, when somebody that I meet on the street just tries to tell me something, I've seen a lot of people holding up signs about the end is near, Jesus is coming. I tend to to wave them off as crazy people. But the people in my life who've come close to me and who've opened the Bible with me and said, hey, look at these prophecies. Look at how real this is. And I know that I've grown to trust them because of the friendship that we have. It's people like that that have led me to faith in Jesus. Because I know that that they wouldn't lie to me. I know from our friendship that I can trust them. They've cared for me in my life. And I believe what they have to share with me. And I believe the Word of God. It goes on to say, we are to weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those that rejoice, accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God. This work will not, cannot be without fruit. When we come close to people, we weep with them when they're weeping. We rejoice when they're rejoicing. We care for people more than just trying to give them doctrinal truth. We first become close to them, and then we invite them to learn about Jesus it will have a powerful impact. In closing, I just wanted to put up a picture of Bumchen Erdenbat. Bumchen lived in Mongolia. In fact, he still lives in Mongolia. You see behind him the yurt that he lived in. That yurt now serves as a Seventh-day Adventist church there in the capital city in Mongolia, and they have some 40 people coming to church there. But I want to take you back a little bit in Bumchin's life. Bumchin was an eighth grader when he first learned about Jesus. He grew up in a Buddhist family where they didn't know about Jesus, but one day a friend invited him to go to a Seventh-day Adventist church in the capital city of Mongolia. As they went to church, he began to learn about this Jesus, and pretty soon he fell in love with Jesus for himself. And as he recognized the priceless treasure that Jesus really is and how Jesus is a sufficient Savior, that he is our high priest, he began to want to tell others. And he began to hear about how there were missionaries needed in the country of Mongolia because that country is so dark. There's so little knowledge of God in Mongolia. So when his family moved away from the capital city, it was not too far away, but they were in a a village where there was only one church. That church was a Sunday-keeping church, and as he began to go to school and get into the, the, the run of things there, he was looking for a church to attend, but he thought, well, I don't know if I could go to that church. And what made it worse? He found out that it was in his math teacher's house. And Bumchin wasn't very good at math, and so he didn't really want to go to church in his math teacher's house, because that would be embarrassing. But Bumchin desperately wanted to reach people for Jesus. So every morning, Bumchin would climb the mountain near his house. And there on the mountain, he would sing songs and worship to Jesus, and he would pray this prayer, God, would you please use me? Simple prayer, God, would you please use me? Day by day, he would climb up the mountain and pray that simple prayer, God, Please use me to reach the people out there. God, please use me. And one day, God laid it on his heart and he began to just run down that mountain. And as he ran down that mountain, he ran straight into the village and he ran straight to his math teacher's house and he ran straight in the door. And as he went in the door of that house church, there were 20 adults sitting there and here he is, an eighth grader. He felt a little awkward at first, but he went in and he sat down in this church. And as he was sitting there, they were talking, and he began to listen to their conversation, and they said, so, friends, this is our last meeting together. Our church is dying, and it's just not working out, and we're just not going to meet and have church here anymore. But Bumchin knew something. 
he knew that Jesus is enough. He knew that there's power in the Word of God. And so Bumpchen actually stood up and he took his Bible and he took 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57 and 58 and he said, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of, your Lord, of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And then Bumchin went on to share other verses about hoping in God. And by the end of it, this group of adults, they looked at him and they said, well, we can't stop. This is basically like our first meeting as a church. And sure enough, they met week after week and Bumchin was going. And pretty soon he decided that he wanted to go back to his Adventist church back in the capital city. And he went and he found the pastor there and he said, would you come and teach my friends here about the Bible? And he brought them back and they They went to the church and once a month this pastor would come, but he said, I I need you, Bumpchin, to help me. I need for you to connect me with these people because you know them. And so they would go month by month and he would preach about the love of God. He would preach about Scripture and week by week these people began to come to trust in the Word of God. One week they decided that, hey, we're going to go to the capital city, to this Adventist church where this pastor is coming from and we have to know more about their God. You see, Bumchin's prayer had changed. He'd been going up on that mountain and no longer was he just praying, Lord, please use me. But now he was saying, Lord, would you please change this church into a Seventh-day Adventist church? Well, they went to the Seventh-day Adventist church. They met there and when they came back the next Sunday, they met together and they said, In a unanimous vote, we from now on are going to meet on the Seventh-day Sabbath. We are going to become a Seventh-day Adventist church. It was the first time in the history of Mongolia where a church transitioned from a Sunday church to a Seventh-day Adventist church. And it happened because of a young eighth grade boy who was willing to share his faith, who loved the people enough that he drew close to them, and week by week he came close to them, and he didn't, first time he went in, he didn't tell them, well, you know the seventh day is the Sabbath, and you shouldn't be worshiping on Sunday. But instead he told them about hope. He told them about Jesus, and eventually God opened the doors where they saw that there's power in the Word of God, and they were able to be led to the deeper truths that you and I hold dear. Friends, how much does Jesus mean to you? How much does the three angels' messages mean to you? How much does the seventh-day Sabbath mean to you? I want to challenge you to pray two prayers. One, to pray, God, would you lead me to appreciate what Jesus has given me more? Would you lead me to treasure Jesus so that I can have faith like those four friends to bring people to you? Because until we recognize that we've got a precious treasure, that the Word of God is living and active and it changes lives, until we recognize that, people aren't going to want what we have. But then I want you to pray a second prayer. Pray the prayer of Bumpchin on that mountain, of just saying, Lord, would you please use me? Would you please develop friendships in my life? Maybe it's tomorrow at the Hope Clinic. Would you help me to come close to somebody and actually learn their name and and to know what they're going through and to be able to reach out to them in the future, to, to be able to take them out to lunch, develop a friendship with them, and then eventually invite them to know Jesus like I know Jesus? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's somebody else that needs a friend in your life. And as you develop that friendship, as you sympathize with them, as you weep with them when they weep, you rejoice with them when they rejoice, God will pour out his grace and power in your life and lead you to reach them and to bring them to Jesus. Do you want to pray those two prayers? I just want to invite you to stand in prayer. If it's your desire to pray those two things. One, God, would you lead me to treasure Jesus and the message that he's given us more so that I desire to draw close to people and bring them to Jesus. And secondly, to pray this prayer, Lord, would you please use me to bring people to Jesus, to be willing to do whatever it takes, to dig through the roof if that's what it takes, to carry a person however far, people that can't get to Jesus. I want to recognize that in Jesus, they will find all that they need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much.
for the incredible riches that there are in Jesus. Lord, you've entrusted to us a precious message that's beyond our comprehension that the angels look at and they they long to to see it all unfold that the watching universe is looking at the church and as we read they long to see your glory revealed and father here we are would you help us to develop closer friendships would you help us to treasure jesus to the extent where we bring our friends to jesus as revealed in your word Lord God, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us and make this a living reality. Give us that same grace that you gave to Paul that we could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We long to make this known to the world. Please, would you empower us to this end? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.